It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I kind of grew up in a in a family where alcohol was just there but it wasn't there it was like the central piece uh it was something even even more than just a cocktail or or two it was it was so ingrained in in my life starting at age zero Mm. and uh so much so that i remember you know walking around my parents cocktail parties with you know things of of wine on a on a platter when i was like 9 or 10 or um bartending starting at like age 12 i'm knocking doors down with ben tough why did i want to talk to ben well his swim tough documentary how he swam his way out of the bottle is about to drop as well. Ben is coming up on 11 years sober and through his sober journey, he found the peace and tranquility of swimming. And in his documentary, Ben sets off to be the first person to swim from Providence, Rhode Island to Jamestown, Rhode Island to raise money for the environmental nonprofit Clean Ocean Access. It's going to be an amazing adventure to follow, hear Ben's story, be inspired, reach out. And I have to say this conversation with Ben has led me to see that much like all of you, I've got the power inside to achieve anything that I put my mind and energy and focus towards. I guarantee you're going to enjoy this. While you're checking Knocking Doors Down out, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you get a lot out of this podcast, share with a friend. And don't forget the archive of interviews we have. Bam Margera, Brandon Novak, Kat Von D, Charlie Sheen, Edward Furlong, Kelly Osborne. The list goes on and on of amazing guests that have been on the podcast sharing how they have found purposeful lives. Speaking of purpose, how about a lifestyle brand with purpose? 5150 LTM. That's right. Not only is it a lifestyle brand that can fit whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life, but they give back to the community. Right now, I am wearing my new 5150 hat, warm leather jacket. As well, I got my new 5150 joggers on that I like to wear around the winter time. And you, the listener of Knocking Doors Down, get 20% off every time you shop at 5150LTM. All you have to do is use the code KDD20 at checkout and get 20% off. And of course, I said it helps within the community. And how does 5150 give back to the community? Portions of the sales benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. There are three amazing programs, the Race to End the Stigma, the Race for Autism, and the race to be drug free. More on the Carlos Vieira Foundation, go to carlosvierafoundation.org. It's the it's the shits as they would say. Yeah. Uh, uh man. No, but, but Vermont, you're probably not getting any too much swimming in right now at this point. I actually do uh, manage to get to the pool if not every day then definitely every other and uh indoor are you one of those guys that's bold enough to do like the ice bath type stuff 
Yeah, well, I I think I would do the ice bath kind of stuff, but I made a rule for myself that when I went out swimming, it had to be something I looked forward to. Otherwise, Mm. I would make excuses, sort of like when I used to run. Like, I, I used to go running, and I would find any excuse not to run. And if I was swimming outside in really uncomfortable weather or doing those ice ice bath things, I would be like, no way. I'd rather go on the Peloton today. <laughs> well, I do want to know more about a lot of the stuff you're doing. Um, the documentary that you're working on surrounding, you know, I mean, you're doing such amazing charitable work through through your recovery process. But, um, you know, Ben, I'm always kind of curious, like, here I am talking to this guy, really switched on doing all these things. I know how I fell into the bottle. How looking back do you think you fell into the bottle? Well, I, I think I was kind of shoved in there at an early age. Um, coming from a, the youngest of six, uh, my oldest brother was 10 years older than me. And growing up, we were kind of, my twin brother and I, we were kind of like in the background a little bit. You know, we were the double mistake at the end. And my dad <laughs> was really busy working. And 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 then my mom was working as a real estate agent. Um, and I kind of grew up in a, in a family where alcohol was just there. It, but it wasn't there. It was like the central piece. Uh, it was something even even more than just a cocktail or or two it was it was so ingrained in in my life starting at age 0 mm. and uh so much so that i remember you know walking around my parents cocktail parties with you know things of of wine on a on a platter when i was like 9 or 10 or um bartending starting at like age 12 and it's not like i got into drinking that early i really didn't start drinking until 16 or 17 but that was out of fear because i was just really worried about drinking and and i was such a hypochondriac uh i had so many anxiety attacks i was i i had a lot of stress growing up and I remember one time my my mom came downstairs into the kitchen and and it was like pretty late. It was like twelve o'clock, and it was a school night. and And she said, "What are you doing up?" I said, "I'm having a panic attack." Like I didn't call it a panic attack, but I didn't know what it was. Mm. And I was like, "I don't know what to do. Like I, I feel like I'm going to die. I think I need to go to the hospital." And she went into the other room and she came back with a shot of vodka and she said, "Here you go. This will help you." And this is, you know, this will help you just go back to bed after this. Um, So always in the back of my mind, I had been accustomed to people around me, especially family, drinking and having any excuse to drink. Stress, anxiety, celebratory, no matter what it was, there was an excuse for it. Um, and, And it was at age 16, 17, I guess my end of my sophomore year of high school that I would, I started to, to drink and kind of party on the weekends and experience my first hangovers and, and all that not so fun stuff. Yeah. That's really interesting. You talk about that because, um, 
gentleman that's been on here, Darren Prince, he talks about, you know, being a very shy kid, having some learning disabilities, goes off to camp, stomach pains, whatever, not fitting in, doesn't want to do the, you know, the social stuff or the performance stuff and goes to the nurse's, nurse's office and they give him the little green drink and all of a sudden, whoa, all that went away, you know? And it's, 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 it's interesting that you talk, you said something, but maybe, maybe you meant it more comically, but I definitely felt it like where you said, uh, you know, the mistake at the end uh, of the yeah. children, you know, kind of thing. Did you carry that? Cause I felt like such a freaking burden as a child. And I don't know where that came from. I don't, I don't, my mom certainly never did anything to make me feel that way. I don't recollect didn't, if my dad did per se, well, it was sort of like under the impression that once the, you know, the twins came around in our family, like there weren't any rules anymore. My brothers and sisters had already broken them all and they, <laughs> my parents knew they didn't really work. So it was kind of like free reign and it was pretty good for us. But at the same time, everything was that much busier when it was our turn to to grow up and experience things. So it's not that we didn't get this, the, the same amount of attention, but the attention we got was just a different kind of attention. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much a parental, uh, you need to do this, 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 and this. It was more of a peer uh, relationship with, with my parents. And again, my, my dad was traveling a lot because uh, he, he was a businessman and uh, he try and make it to as many games or or to as many dinners as he could but he wasn't always around yeah no i i and i can relate to that my dad is a, a business owner truck driver gone a lot late nights you know all that stuff and and of course as well growing up in a, in a home of addiction um but you know it's um it's weird that hypochondriac though uh I've been trying to reflect on that. I don't know about it. I got a lot of gaps in childhood. When do you think and where do you think that started? Why why the, the oh, constant without a, I knew exactly where it started in second grade. Uh one of my one of my teammates on my baseball team. His name was Alex Rumetz. I still I haven't talked to him since then, but he was diagnosed with bladder cancer and I remember like throughout that season, he ended up in the final game of the season. His brother was an unbelievable athlete and he wasn't so great. And it was a wonderful life lesson for, for my twin brother and me because Alex pitched that last game and his brother should have been pitching, but he pitched it because it, everyone thought it was going to be the last little league game he ever played and he ended up going in remission and and doing great but literally from the second i found out about that i was convinced i had cancer and and all time i i've had every single <laughs> cancer in my life inside my head um and it, it when you have that mentality for me that makes for a really, really good alcoholic because it's a disease of the brain. And, and it was very easy for me to drink my th way through problems and through my mind games that I played with myself, you know, and it was very, those, 
debilitating panic attacks. It never happened while I was drinking. It always happened either when I was hungover and like super anxious <laughs> or it, it happened just randomly during the week. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of what you're saying there with that. It's the off switch. It's the off switch. You know, I was, I did a, I spoke at a high school, a couple of classes and, and, um, young lady asked me about that. And, you know, I was a late bloomer, kind of started drinking, you know, maybe late teens, early twenties, but it wasn't, uh, anything but a drink here and there, but about mid twenties is when it took off. And I said, it's just, uh, it became the off switch of everything, you know? And I got like the, the rock star crazy creative too. I would write all these notes, then go back to work. I worked in radio and they're like, what the F were you doing last night? You know, it's like, this is nuts. No, it'll work. Try it. Trust me. <laughs> the Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. How long do you, did, did this persist? When did you really start to just think, gosh, I, when did you have the first thoughts, I don't want this problem anymore, this burden? Uh, well, it was funny. Like my, I remember my mom said, if you have one more of these anxiety attacks and we have to go to the hospital, like, or if something's really wrong with you, I'm going to take you to a psychiatrist. Oh, and of course I had one like a week later and she took me to the scariest psychiatrist in all of Atlanta, I think. And <laughs> this guy, he had like the accent, he had like the the cards and and the big glasses he was probably like 70 years old and i was like oh i'm definitely not coming back to this guy like it was like it was such a bad thing so from that point on if anything i just learned to internalize it a little bit more and and not express it which as many of us know is probably the worst thing you can do because keeping that all inside is a recipe for for disaster uh but it didn't stop me especially later on after college uh from using alcohol to to you know if i was depressed i would drink if i was on cloud nine i was totally psyched fired up nice summer day i would drink um, if, if I was kind of feeling anxious about anything, I would drink. If I was feeling like somebody had wronged me or I needed to get back at someone, I, I would drink. And the, the excuses just kept going on until the point where about 14, 15 years ago, I was a nightly drinker. I was hiding the drinks from, from my wife and, and from my family. And I would like, I was so sick that I would always have a $20 bill in the back of my wallet. Mm. 
I would get it with cash back when I went to the grocery store so that my my wife would never see it on any receipt or ATM. I'd go to the liquor store like sometime during the day. I worked at a school and I would buy a pint of vodka, uh, the 100 proof, whatever it was, and I would buy two vitamin waters. I'd sip them both down just below the labels, and then I would fill them up and then seal them up, put them in my backpack, and I was ready to go. And mm-hmm. I'd have one of those that night, and then I'd be good for the next night. And uh, I would also have you know, a bunch of beers after that just to continue it and to cover it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But that road was a, a short one and my existence unraveled very very quickly wow yeah it's i remember you know talking about those hiding things um when i was married having an extra cooler in the garage and so when it was it was uh hey can you go buy us more beer route sure show up with 130 pack that went in the house one that went out there, hey, I got stuff to do out in the garage. So when it looks like I'm having three beers, I'm having six or nine. You know what I'm saying? So I had my my hiding techniques, you know. And as the guy that always did the recycling, it's like crush the cans, put them in the bin. Who's going to know? <laughs> and it, it's just this, this sneaky crap that we do to just continue to, you know, lie to everybody else before we want to tell ourselves the truth. Right. And I thought I was so smart. For some reason, I, I don't know why, but I thought I was like the smartest person in the world. But at the same time, about probably six months into the switch to vodka, uh, because I was doing it with beer on the way home, you know, like drink your like 24 ouncer and I just find somewhere to throw it out, like at the garbage bin or whatever, and then go home. But, you know, it was very... It was. It wasn't too long, and until literally, I could not keep it going, mm. and I could not keep functioning at that level. And you know, I would find excuses to make it earlier and earlier and earlier in the day, and it it got to the point where I was just like obliterated by the time it was time for bed, like nine o'clock at night. And yet there was no alcohol in the house. And my wife was like, what is going on? Like, how, how is this happening? And it, it was just me. It was me playing mind tricks on myself. And when I was drinking those vitamin waters, I convinced myself that it was just a vitamin water. Oh yeah. It was such a scary existence because I was a hundred percent convinced that that's what it was. I didn't even think about the vodka. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a trip. I, I remember in a meeting, a guy had said something very similar and it made me ponder. Cause I was more of, if it was hard alcohol, like rum or whiskey or something like that, but with soda, of course. And I was like, no, I'm just having an adult soda. It was the BS thing that I rationalized with myself. It's crazy how how our mind and our reward system goes so far that 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 we are literally one part of our brain's lying to the other part of our brain to keep it freaking going. 
to, on our way to our death. Right. And I, there was one point, it, it was probably, so I'll be 11 years sober this April 21st. Right so on. it would have been somewhere around 11 years ago, right now or so. And I was driving back and I stopped on the dirt road back to our house. And I looked in the rear view mirror. And I remember this so well, because I've still, I had the shakes. I had the shakes all day long, you know, sweating. And I looked in the mirror and I said, you have a problem. Ben, you have a problem. Like, this is an issue. Like, you can't ignore this anymore. Yeah. What was that? So you you said you were working at a school. I mean, what was happening? Like, like, you know, work. People don't believe me at the level I was drinking to still, you know, maintain my job. I actually do well at it. It was, uh, and my responsibilities were so vast. You know, I was an advisor. I I had um, 11 eighth grade boys who lived in the house with our family in the dorm. Mm. I taught English classes. I worked in admissions. I worked in fundraising and I coached three varsity sports and I was able, you know, one of the nice pieces of my personality is I can get distracted really easy. And especially around kids who I connect with more than with grownups, I was able to make it work through those connections and by distracting myself throughout the day until I could finally have that drink. And I just powered through some horrendous hangovers. Yeah. Oh, do you, I, I still have at times I'll get the, uh, some of the toxic dreams and wake up like, Oh God, thank goodness. I'm sober. And I, the, the thing that I remembered the most is that illness of a hangover. And, and like, I keep that really, really close to the chest. Oh man. Like that feeling is unlike any, any feeling and what we would do to combat it, you know, whether it was like, I, you know, I remember there's one time that I ended up just like chugging a bunch of beers at like six o'clock in the morning um, during the summertime and just being like, Oh, like, okay. I, I feel, I feel somewhat normal mm-hmm. again, but the, I remember I asked when I was right out of, uh, rehab, I, I called my sponsor and I was like, I keep having these like really vivid drinking dreams. And like, I feel it's like my fault. And that when I wake up, I'm, I'm, I actually am responsible for it and shouldn't be sober. Like, what do I do? And he said, those are called freebies and you got to just learn to enjoy them. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, you know, I could look at it that way, but you know, sure enough, as time went on and the, the role of alcohol has thankfully so much lessened over the years. I don't have those dreams as much. I do. I do have a dream dream that from, from now and now and again about, relapsing because Mm. that for me is such a huge fear and 
uh, I, I get this dream that for some reason I like drink a beer or or uh, uh, an alcoholic drink. And then I say to myself, you're no longer, you, you're zero. You're, you're starting all over again. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And see, I, I like that for me. I don't know about you. I'm sure you've sponsored people and maybe people that have fallen off and in, in, in some of that self judgment of it, that people tend to have. I know I did with my relapse. See, look, everything I believed about myself being a loser and a piece of trash, it's, it's all true, you know? But how do you maybe in talking with some of the newcomers about that kind of help them frame it to not go back into that shame spiral? Because that's the easiest way to fall off and keep going. Right, right. And, you know, for me, and again, one of the reasons why I decided to make the, the film that I that I did was there's so much negativity associated with recovery. And there's so much negativity even within the recovery world. And I, I talked to sponsees or or friends or relatives who go to AA meetings and they're like, this is like Debbie Downer. Like this is the worst experience ever. Everything is like, wah, 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 you know, and it's not a positive thing. But my approach to sobriety is to embrace it and make it the most amazing thing possible. And I do that because if it wasn't for the fact that I got sober, there is no way that I would be the person doing the things that I'm doing today. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I wouldn't be, you can't enjoy life and enjoy those around you until you learn to love yourself. And if you are an addict and you have yet to find recovery, it is very, very difficult. And I'm talking about me now. Uh, it is. It was for me very, very difficult to love myself. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think it's hard no matter what as a person, right? I forget what the self-help book was like the best-selling self-help book in the seventies. And the first thing was life is hard and it just is. And, and I think so many of us, uh, I, I forget if I came up with it, like amalgamized from somebody else or what it was or one of my mentors, but you know, no outside solutions to inside problems. Mm -hmm. And we're in such a society now where it's like, Everybody's a freaking victim for everything. You can be offended by everything that goes on. You know, it 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 goes from you know a moral issue to a person. I'm just offended. It's you know, it's just it it's tough, and I can relate about there was many AA groups. I just stopped going, and and my sponsor actually lives six hours away from me. He goes, why did you stop going to those meetings? I go, it felt like everybody there was looking for a solution and not accepting the solution is I just can't drink. Like they were looking for something to, to just go, ah, and I can get back. And you know, the, the thing I'll switch from the beer to the wine and only vodka and only on Friday nights and only, you know, only mimosas. On. It was like, uh, like I can't be here around this. This, this is not positive. This is not solution based, you know? And, and by the end, 
and, and like people sidebarring. It's like everybody is just judging each other. Like, well, you that I didn't do that. It's like, what is the point of that? So it, I get where it's like, yeah, sometimes it's hard to bring some newcomers in if you can't share the story of, yeah, like yours, I was here, but look what I'm doing now. And without that elimination of my substance of choice, I wouldn't be here. When I when I first got to rehab, and I didn't find this out until many years later, but uh, I went down to Silver Hill Hospital down in uh, New Canaan, Connecticut. And mm-hmm. I tell everyone it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And while I was down there, uh, I was also diagnosed with bipolar. And, th- you know, through that process of learning why I had these crazy thoughts and, you know, I was up and down all the time, that helped bring a little bit of clarity to my life. And I said to Rocky, who still is my doctor, and I, I said to him a few years after I got out and I said, Rocky, what was what did everyone think of me at the hospital Like when I got there? like What was their impression? And they're like, Ben, we don't want you to do anything because you were just too damn happy all the time. Like almost to the point that we thought that something was wrong with you or you were trying to trick us. Because you were just so positive. And huh. I was like, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I can just imagine. I, I got this picture like being in rehab with you, like this SOB here, over here, always happy. I haven't right. had a drink in three days. <laughs> yeah. Uh. I drove people crazy because I was like, okay, who wants to go? Like, it's free time. Let's go play some tennis. Come on, let's go. They're like, are you serious? Like, just chill out. Like, let us just do our thing. I was, and and that's just part of who I am. I'm I'm always ready to do something, and and it's one of the reasons why for me I've I think found so much success in in sobriety because I'm always ready for the next thing, already always eager to keep it as positive as possible, and at the same time, I get the most reward from helping others, Mm. especially for those that are suffering. And if I can help others, uh, then it's sort of like a puzzle to me. Each one is a puzzle and I just want to undo it all and get them to the point that I am. Yeah. I had to start and it was ironic. It was a, um, helped me about two months ago. It was an interview with George Carlin. I forget who was interviewing him. And, you know, they're talking about his comedy. I think he's the most brilliant co- comedian ever myself for my taste. And he he talked about, like, not giving a darn about society as a whole anymore, but the individual. You know, and for me, it was like, oh, I want to, you know, impact so many different people. Go into an AA meeting if I'm a speaker and have this thing and everybody you know, applauds because it made them feel, you know, not for me, but, but the story and to see it. And, and and I realized when he said, no, you can see a universe in an individual's eyes before all these things, dogma and everything else starts to erode them when there's a collective, you know, and there was something about that that was really impactful that it was like, oh, okay. If I can just, just that one person, that one other person at a time, it, 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 it helped me just kind of I guess there was some ego there that I wasn't able to see. Like, you know, I've been given this gift 
I look at my my addiction as a gift uh, and my recovery a greater one that, okay, maybe it's the newcomer. Maybe it's the old older individual that's had 40 years and they lost their spouse and that's a big trigger. You know, I don't know. It, 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 the universe will let me know. 100%. And I often introduce myself as the most thankful alcoholic on the planet because uh, I... I've just been able to, everything just seemed to have aligned in the last 11 years in such a way that it's made it all worth it. And there's no way that I would have the mindset that I have now if I hadn't have gone through what I went through as a, a user and as an alcoholic. Yeah. What was uh, you? You had mentioned that you know, and I forget what term you used, but essentially when the wheels fell off, what, what, what was that point of acknowledgement? And then you, you know, asking help. Was it coming home to the misses? Like I need help. This is what's going on. What you know? You, you, for those just listening, Ben made this look like oh hell no. Okay, so I was such a wimp, and I. I've always had a hard time asking for help. I still do. It's one of my weaknesses. I'll recognize that. Mm. And I had a panic attack and I asked my wife to take me to the hospital and we went into the hospital. We went into like the triage room and we were in there for like two hours and they didn't admit us. And I'm like, I get the nurse. I'm like, what the heck? It was 1130 in the afternoon or in the morning. And I said to the nurse, I said, are you going to admit us or admit me? And she said, I, we will as soon as your blood alcohol level gets below the legal limit. So it was 1130 and I'd stopped drinking at 830 the night before. My liver functioning was not at the greatest after doing what it had been doing for so long. And that's, I didn't know until I went to rehab that like you could have like three shots or you could have 30 shots and you, it would affect you the same depending on how your liver was a, like functioning that day. So I kind of looked over at my wife, like uh, she didn't know I had been drinking oh. and she said, what, how is that possible? And you know, when your stomach just kind of like hits the bottom and, and I said, okay, let's go. I'm ready. I want help. I want to go to rehab. I've got a serious problem. Um, let's figure it out. And I just started crying. And, uh, you know, luckily my brother Alex uh, was at the other end of a phone, figured out everything for me to go to Silver Hill. I was in detox at Torrington Hospital in Connecticut, which is like not the place that you want to be. Uh, on a for a, a long period of time uh sure. with with a lot of you know users but like pretty hefty users from the streets and yeah. and what have you and uh that was probably the best eye opener for me you know as i met some of these guys that had been in detox for like the 11th or 12th time right. and then i go from there to this unbelievable facility with all these other guys living in uh in an awesome house together working through 
their addictions. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so much I had a choice. Uh, I guess I did because I would have lost everything if I didn't make the right choice. Yeah, yeah choices can... <laughs> Choices are a son of a bitch in life at times, that's for sure. But so talking about the place where you detox, and I'm I'm gonna guess probably if eleven years ago, probably a lot of heroin, methamphetamines. Um, you know, what what are kind of the some of the things that you can still recollect for you that was eye opening? Well, it was funny because I was still under this I was so clueless as to what recovery was mm. and I didn't realize the first three days that you're supposed to go to these group meetings and of, of, of like talking to, um, you know, people coming from AA and, 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 and what have you. And I, I realized very quickly that the people who were on that floor with me, were exactly like me. They may have come from different walks of life, but we all had this common bond of addiction, which kind of bound us together. Um, the unfortunate part is that I was the only one on that floor with the finances to go to a real rehab facility, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the most limiting factors in so many people getting sober. And, you know, for that, I, again, I feel a little bit of guilt. Um, but I also feel very fortunate that I was able to do that. Yeah. I work for a, um, nonprofit in uh, Fresno, California, and the founder, he owns a, a rehab facility as well. And that's some of our biggest conversations about the fact that insurance is such a joke of course, I know primarily California. I'm not sure about other states, but boy, yeah, like getting someone if if let alone if they're a transient person, it's almost nil. You're you're, you're not you're not going to have any success. And, and if you have, let's say, you know, state government healthcare, whatever it is, if the local county, you know, health facility might be able to help you out, but as far as you know, getting someone detoxed, forget it. With what's out there now, I mean, if they're a fentanyl addict, you know, they, they might, it, it's, it's just a nightmare. It's a scary situation. And, you know, I've, I've let for me, I guess, as you're doing, and I want to get into the, the swimming where it started and, and the, you know, I mean, geez, you continue to raise money for so many wonderful different causes, organizations, but that's kind of where I've placed my servitude. Like, you know, how can we help these people? Without making it some political thing, because it always gets turned in that just a human to a human. And and that's the scariest thing about me. I don't know about in Vermont, but here in California, especially L.A. and San Francisco, it's just like, well, we're not going to arrest them anymore. Cool. So you're going to acknowledge it's a mental health issue and we're going to get them in a facility, a state run and get something going. No, we're just going to leave them on the streets to go ahead and continue to shoot up or use. And especially like with fentanyl now, just finding people all over the place. And, right. you know, the what is it? Trank where it's nylazine mixed with the fentanyl and it's literally rotting people's limbs off where they're in check. You know, it's like, how how is this the humane thing? How did we how do we go from we're not going to lock them up anymore, which, yeah, won't 
do anything because lots of them go in and still find their drugs and <laughs> become better criminals to continue to fill their habit if and when they get out. Uh, but we're just going to leave them on the streets to die. Right. And, and, and the, 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 the fact is, is that, you know, I'm not going to blame my addiction on my mental health, but mm. it didn't help it. Um, you know, being bipolar and there's so many people with undiagnosed mental illness, um, due to, you know, insurance coverage, due to stigma, due to lack of accessibility. And, you know, for me, it's a two pronged uh, approach with, with these addicts because you can't treat the addiction without also treating the mental health piece. And I'm also, you know, if I could send everybody to rehab, whether they drink or whether they have an addiction or not, like I would, because you learn so much about yourself and you get that, you finally get that emotional support and you, you get the coping skills that you might have never picked up on earlier in your life. And then you get to start all over and it's such a cool thing. Yeah. I, I, I joke Ben off and I'm like, we should work on curriculum that's 12 step based for every high school in the country. <laughs> <laughs> but then you'll have teenagers going home going, wow, my parents are really emotionally immature. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the truth, especially in today's world that I, I spent, I've spent 21 years dealing with a lot of parents and it's amazing how many of them are just clueless. Yeah. Or don't care or genuinely right. don't care. Right. Like I, I see it. I don't know about you with your experience. I'm, I'm as I'm worried for all young individuals, uh, you know, they, they are facing things that you and I growing up just didn't have, you know, and I, I'll tell them that when I go and speak of them, like, you know, you'll probably hear adults go, well, when you're my age and it's like, no, your guys, everyone at every age faces something tough. That's just reality. That's life, how it is. And you guys are facing a whole multitude of things that I wasn't confronted with, that I didn't have to deal with. If there was social media with my depression in high school, somebody probably said, you know, something terrible to me. Who knows what that would have done? You know? Right. Who right. knows? It's, it's, um, it's unfathomable what they're dealing with. But yeah, I think if we could get 12-step curriculum in, in high schools, it'd be a great thing for the world in general. For sure. For sure. So how did we uh, start then through your recovery journey? Just, uh, you know, you're an active guy. You're a doer. When was the point that, you know, I, I don't know. I'm a storyteller, so I kind of vision this night. You're sitting there reading. The missus reading. You look at her and you go, I'm going to swim and, and raise money for causes I believe in. <laughs> I wish it worked like that, but it was, so I was at, at Silver Hill and I heard this guy talk. He was from Ireland, had an awesome Irish accent and someone before the, the meeting, I was so nervous about finding a sponsor and I was like, I feel like I'm like asking someone out on a date. I don't know who it's going to be. Like, I, this is like really awkward. And uh, meanwhile, I wasn't used to being in social situations without having a good buzz on. So 
I hear him talk and he talks about how he was a former marathon runner and how he was doing triathlons. And I was like, that's, that's so cool. Like I got it. He's got to be my sponsor. So I went up to him after the meeting and I said, Ken, will you be my sponsor? He was like, yeah, I'll, I'll be your sponsor. And and I said, oh, and do you think I could learn how to swim? Um, because I'd love to do triathlons like you. Cause that sounds so cool. He was like, yeah, like I learned how to swim no problem. You can do it. So right after I got out of rehab, five weeks later, I got a gym membership and I kind of taught myself how to swim. I could swim a little bit, but like not proper swim. Mm. Uh, so I ended up doing one length, two lengths, and then four lengths, and then eight lengths. And after three months, I'd, I'd done enough to be swimming like a quarter of a mile. So I signed up for a sprint triathlon and I actually did okay. Like I was kind of middle, middle of the pack for the swim. I was like, that was awesome. And I did triathlon for about seven years, really competitively. Um, but the problem is, is that I have a really competitive mentality. And for me, if you're ever doing something that is no longer enjoyable, as an activity or a sport, you probably should switch and and find something new. And I found myself at the starts, like looking at people's calves and looking how old they were. I'm like, I'm going to kick your butt. I'm going to kick your butt. Like, and it was just like, this is so, I was like, you're crazy. You know, I would go home and be like, and I, again, I was doing well and I was ready to be just done with it. So I did a like two mile swim in Rhode Island. And I was like, that was not bad at all. Like I can do that. And I signed up for a 12 and a half mile swim around Key West, which was the Florida Keys community college swim. And it was really hot, but I thought, you know what? Great excuse to go down to the Keys for a weekend to, to take my twin brother down there. uh, Who's also in sobriety and we'll have a blast. He'll be my support kayaker and we'll do it and it was it was not a piece of cake but it was it wasn't bad and i was like okay like i can keep going with this and uh from that point on i did a 20 mile swim around the island of jamestown and then a uh 19 mile swim from block island to jamestown and then I swam the whole distance of Narragansett Bay from Providence all the way down to Jamestown, Rhode Island. Wow. So, um, and and the best thing about it is that, like, I'm not even, like, a really good swimmer. Like, if anybody watches my movie, like, real swimmers, they'd be like, dude, seriously, look at your catch. Look at your pull. <laughs> like, look at your kick. Look at your breathing. You're not a great swimmer, but I don't care. I just do it for myself. I'm not doing it for anyone else. Um, And at the same time, I I needed something else to kind of motivate me and to hold me accountable. And in the same way that I encourage people who want to try something new, like swim or, or, or run a 5k or do a 10k or run a marathon. I just make them sign up for one. I say, okay, Hmm. let's find one. That'll be fun. You're going to sign up for it. And if you back out at the end, it's not a big deal. And that used to be enough for me. But then I said, okay, I got to put a little bit more out there because these swims are getting kind of long and ridiculous. So there was a 
uh, environmental group in in Rhode Island called Clean Ocean Access. And um, over the last three swims, I've raised, you know, just over a quarter of a million dollars for them. And it's been awesome because when I go and I do those races about halfway in, um, my, my friend Liz, who does all the fundraising with me, she'll yell out what my grand total is as the money's coming in. And I'll know that, you know, I have 500 people who are backing me right then and supporting me. And some people give for clean ocean access because they know it's a great cause, but a lot of people also give because of the sobriety piece, because of what I re represent in the world of sobriety. And I'm so outspoken in it, in the news and in the newspaper and, and what have you, that it ends up becoming sort of a message saying to the people out there, like, it's okay. Like yeah. you can, you can do this like Ben does. And, and that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever your, the thing is that you find, you know, you know maybe they're not like you in a, a you know, a, a gung ho and type of person, but it could be like, you know, it could be something simple. And I love right. it, man. I gotta, uh, yeah, we're going to put the, uh, for those listening or watching the link is in the podcast description for the documentary. So please check it out. Cause it's, um, it's some powerful stuff. It might it might, might make you switch some mindsets. I do want to ask about the bipolar. I because uh, I take a very mild form of uh, a very low dose of medication for my depression. How did you start to uh, confront the bipolar once you were going through your recovery journey? What are some of the things that that help you maintain? I know some people take medication, some don't if they don't have to. So yeah, my my psychiatrist um, started me out on a medication and then kind of titrated me down to the lowest mm -hmm. level. So I'm I'm below like therapeutic level on on my medication. Uh, but it's it's funny because in the beginning of my sobriety, I used it as an excuse, and the, whenever I shared, I'd say, "Well, I'm suffering from bipolar." And that led to my drinking that, and, and I realized in time that for me, it wasn't the bipolar that led to the drinking, you know, it just was a coexisting condition for me that did not, it was not helped by the drinking. No. And uh, it, it was, I, I would say probably a year into my sobriety when I just, I would, it would I would talk about bipolar when I had to in in meetings or when it came up. But other than that, I just talk about recovery uh, a little bit more openly now. Yeah, thank you for sharing because there's a lot of stigma around that too. I mean, I've had some people. I don't know about you, but ah, you're taking something. You're not sober. It's like, well, I don't. I, no offense. I don't want to be the guy that's uh, doesn't want to get out of bed for a week either. So uh, right. you know, uh, if right. it's something where I can, you know, do this and like you, where it's just such a minor, minor, minor thing. Um, yeah. Well, who are you to sit and judge? You know. I mean, there's so much stigma around any form of harm reduction that is out there. You know, people that maybe it's maybe like those those folks when you were in detox maybe what is helping them is 
is a teeny little tiny amount of, of methadone or suboxone and it keeps them from returning to the streets and getting illicit drugs and shooting up and dying you know like who am i to, to sit and place some judgment upon that like you know as an edu- yeah and as an educator in in this world i i learned pretty quickly with the add adhd drugs that are out there and so overly prescribed i i i tell kids and i tell their parents and very explicitly that as soon as the side effects outweigh the benefits you need to stop mm-hmm. and there are so many parents that are like oh like little joey can't do his work without his ritalin or his adderall uh, and then little Joey's complained to me he hasn't eaten in a, a week and can't sleep at night. Uh, you know, there needs to be yeah. a, a thinking uh, behind that. And for for me, it's the same thing. Like if some of the, for the medication that I take, some of the like bad side effects would be like lethargic and sleeping too much. And I'm swimming around islands and like working out more than any human being uh, that I hang out with anyway. So I'm doing just fine. And to each their own, whatever keeps you doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, and I, and you nailed it there. It's with with any situation when the side effects start to outweigh, you know, uh, I won't get off into our last, you know, our, our last couple of years here in this world, but, uh, but it's, yeah, it's really disheartening. And I, I'm, uh, I have such that huge concern for an undeveloped brain, you know, that earlier than 26 really entering any sort of substance. Um, God, I can't remember the actor's name now. He played Sully in Indiana Jones and a friend of mine does these comic cons in Canada and he was having a conversation with him and he was so passionate about that. Like they are pumping a bunch of stuff into undeveloped brains like, you know, a little kid. I was a rambunctious little kid. You know why? Because I was a little kid. I still am a rambunctious little kid, and that's just not going to change. Yeah, don't ever lose that, Ben. I love <laughs> that about you, man. Uh, if you want to, uh, we're going to jump into some random questions. I'm going to leave you with uh, with giving the final thoughts. But please tell people about where they can find the doc, uh, maybe what your next swim is, how they can contribute. Yeah, so I actually will be hitting the road. The The documentary is going to be finished in about three weeks. Okay. So they're still writing the score for the music and touching up a few things. And, and then I'm going to be hitting the road actually all over the U.S., hitting up different um, film festivals. And we will be pitching the music, I mean, pitching the movie to... Netflix, Amazon, HBO, Hulu, like the big ones. And then it will be picked up by by one of them, most likely and hopefully. And uh, it will be available to the masses. And I'm also going to start doing some screenings at recovery centers and at schools and and kind of making my way around the the US to kind of just speak and you know I am going to be focusing a lot on middle schoolers and upper schoolers so you know grades 6 through 12 
because in my mind, they're the most clueless right now. Mm-hmm. And if I can help them have a better understanding of what addiction looks like and can look like, I feel that I can improve the chances of them getting help for themselves, getting help for one of their friends or getting help for a loved one, a family member. So everyone's like, well, there's no money in, in, in going to middle school and upper school kids, upper schools. And I was like, well, I don't really care <laughs> if there's money or not. It's about making a difference. And it will, you know, my, my goal is to really connect with, with these kids because I, I've already taken four of my former students to rehabs. Um, I've got two at rehab right now and they came to me because I've been open about my sobriety. It's not for everybody. And I totally understand that, but I feel like I'm here for a reason and I got to make a difference for it. So, um, you can always email me at bentuff at gmail.com. If you have any questions or if you want to get a hold of me and, my website, which is going to be updated pretty soon with where I'll be, when I'll be there, is swimtough.com. Yeah. And again, the link is in the podcast description. All right, Ben, this is where we have some fun. All right. Of course, the uh, random question brought to you by 5150 LTM. Fabulous sponsor. Couldn't do the podcast without them. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. Uh, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Not the one you already have. You don't get to use that one. That's too easy. So, so a super, super, uh, like a you know, an X Men type thing. I would love to fly. Yeah. Now, is it maybe for the same reason as me, and that's avoiding TSA or just the enjoyment thereof? Just the enjoyment thereof. I always have flying dreams. One one of the greatest parts of my sobriety. I used to have them as little kid as a little kid, but now I get them all the time, and it's awesome. Really? I used to as a kid too, like t- vivid enough then that I remember like flying, like, like it was a slow, like floating kind of thing down the ceiling of the house that I grew up in, like just almost skimming it. And to me, it's like, if I think back, it felt so real, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, my brain's yeah. like, I don't know about that, but it's like, mm, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Uh, if you were stranded on a deserted island and you had one movie with you and one music artist's greatest hits, what would they be? The movie that I would bring would probably be Shawshank Redemption. Never gets old. And the greatest hits, I would have to say, would have to be Peter Tosh. Really? Right on. So when I swim, I I have a device called a Delphin, which is hmm. like a uh, iPod. 
and it has music on it. And I listened to music for 15 hours during my whole swim. And the only music I listened to was reggae. I'll be damned. That's cool, yep. man. That's yep. cool. Uh, yeah, you can't beat Andy Dufresne, right? I mean, such yep. a great movie. Uh, let me, I want to ask a little bit about the swing. What's the kind of prep? I mean, you're out there 15 hours. I, I do believe you get some kind of snackage, so to speak. But man, what is the kind of the calorie load and the training up to that? Because 15 hours, let alone uh, the second part of that will be what was the trepidations about such long ocean swimming? Because as a kid that grew up on the coast in California, man, I learned about riptides at a pretty early age. Yeah, so the the, the tides, um, the tides and the wind are the biggest concern. And for that last swim, it was brutal. Uh, you know, for I, I averaged two point one miles per hour. There was one hour that I averaged about one hundred and twenty yards because of the wind and the current. And yet my stroke rate stale, it stayed at 49.50 the whole time. So uh, two swims ago, my biggest concern was sharks because it's the one of the top breeding grounds of the great white shark. And we actually pinged two very large great white sharks during the swim. Was that um, when you were off the, the coast of the Carolinas? That was off of Block Island. Oh, okay. Um, right. And I actually wore a shark leash, which was, it's about three feet long. It puts off an electric current every six seconds or so, and it shocks all the water around you and supposedly keeps sharks at bay and they don't attack you. So I liked that piece, um, at least in my head, I could tell myself, I'm okay. I'm not going to get bit by, by a shark. Um, my, my calorie, I burned in the last, the last swim I did, I burned just over 9,000 calories over those 15 hours. And I managed to put in about 6,000 calories, which isn't too bad. And, uh, about nine liters of water I drank along the way. So every 35 minutes I would take a snack and some water. Uh, my snack of choice is peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and I just make it the day before and let it get soggy, and I just put it in my mouth and eat it half by half. I don't even I don't even chew it up, um, and uh, and and that's that's how I get enough of uh, the the caloric intake to keep me going. That is. That is, uh, I was going to say banana sandwiches, but we'll just say peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, man. That is wild. Do you, uh, do you have to do ego checks with yourself? Because I'm going to tell you, you're an extraordinary person. This is not an average person thing. Is there times where you're like, okay, Ben, yes, this is pretty cool. You're doing it with Pat, but don't let ego override or the missus goes hey ben uh check that ego stuff right now i'm like i'm the total opposite of that kind of person luckily really? so when i first a year and a half ago matt corliss who is the producer of this film uh he did uh free solo he did oh, he worked wow. on um the social dilemma he did chasing corals he's done a lot of big films and he did a like one hour interview on the phone with me to see if he wanted to 
kind of take up this project. And I was like, Matt, like I'm all for this, but like, I think a documentary about me is going to be kind of boring. Like I don't really know what you're going to get out of it. And, and he said, if you can keep that attitude, this is going to be the best movie I've ever made. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's, you know, that's the the truth. And, and, and maybe that's also a reason why I like kids, like students so much, because not only can I relate them to them and in, in my mentality, but they also bring you down to earth because they don't judge. And when you surround yourself with people that don't judge, you don't have to posture yourself and you don't have to be someone bigger than who you really are. You know, I'm just, I'm an alcoholic who wants to do good in the world, who learned how to swim and does these crazy swims. That's, that's kind of who I am. And if I can pass that on to others to help them figure themselves out and figures other and figure others around them out, then I'm good. I was going to ask you for the final thoughts, but boy, I don't know. That might just be the place to stop right there. Unless uh, you have some additional wisdom or, or encouragement you want to drop on anyone that may be struggling. Maybe they have a loved one that struggle. We do get a lot of people that listen and have a loved one struggling with a mental health issue or uh, addiction or like you and I, the, the, the two um, that you might want to share. Well, you know, as, as I've had a couple really tough situations with with some young adults recently and with parents having no idea what to do mm. uh, there are resources out there and you know if you find a great recovery center if you, if you or if you find a, a great uh, mental health health provider they can help walk you through it don't be afraid of that and don't be afraid of the stigma that it might bring upon your family or about your child or whoever you're you're dealing with and you know for for me i i also talk a lot to people in early recovery or people in recovery who kind of have hit uh all and oftentimes the reason why that wall is there is because we become so stuck in our ways that we forget to try new things and we, we, we forget to mix it up. So no matter how old you are, no matter how difficult of a time you've had, it's never too late to try something new. I taught an 82 year old man who is 48 years sober, how to swim in Texas, uh, not that long ago. So that was a rewarding experience and he loved it. So just go for it. Ben, this has been a real pleasure. No, likewise. Thank you for having me. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about.